So imagine with me for just a minute, if on a typical Sunday morning like today, if one of our men, say Nick Horton, who often reads and prays scripture, brought his Bible up here at the appropriate time, opened his Bible, and then read a portion of scripture that was a prophecy from the Old Testament about the Messiah. And imagine as Nick, one of our own, got to the end of reading that prophecy about the anointed one, the coming Messiah of God, if Nick closed his Bible and looked up at you and said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in me. Yeah, that's exactly what would happen. We would all gave. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Up a little too late last night, maybe? <laughs> but that's exactly what Jesus of Nazareth did. Local hometown boy in his hometown church. He got up at the appropriate time, opened his Bible, the scroll of Isaiah, and read our sermon text for today. And then he closed the scroll and said, this is fulfilled in your hearing today. Some people were shocked. Others were amazed. And even others horrified to where they wanted to take him and throw him off of a cliff. That's what we see happening in Luke chapter 4 that Nick, I mean Nate, read for us earlier today. Well, our sermon text is Isaiah 62 and 63, two chapters. I know we do this sometimes. Sometimes we take a small portion, sometimes we take a large portion, and the way that we determine the portions are based on units, and I believe that 61 and 62 is one solid unit. So please take your copy of God's Word, turn to Isaiah 61 and 62. If you didn't bring your Bible, that's okay. We provide a black one there at your feet. It'll be near you under one of the chairs. The reason that we have chosen this as a unit is because it's like a speech. Um, it's a message where God's Redeemer, God's Anointed One, explains His mission to make God's people righteous, which brings them into a new reality. So let me say that again because that's going to be the running sentence that you're going to need to follow throughout this sermon today. Our sermon text is a message where God's Redeemer explains His mission to make God's people righteous, which brings them into a new reality. And so as we read through these two chapters, this message... I want you to listen for those three main themes. We're going to learn something about the Redeemer. We're going to learn something about the righteousness that He gives His people. And then we're going to learn something about the new reality. 
that this brings God's people into. And you're going to hear those three things, the Redeemer, the righteousness, and the new reality, over and over and over in the four sections of this particular message. So as we read it, I want you to uh, to look for those three themes, those three threads that run through the text. And uh, I want you to know, even as we uh, before we read this, that there's some debate about who is speaking in different parts of this speech or sermon or message. There's some debate about, well, is this the anointed one speaking or is this the Lord speaking? Well, for us, there doesn't need to be a debate because we know that it's Jesus Christ of Nazareth who is the anointed one and who is the Lord. So in Isaiah, they're hearing it and they're hearing it about the Lord sending his Redeemer And they don't have a concept necessarily to understand that God became flesh so that he could save us from our sin. We do because we have the New Testament that shows us the fulfillment of all of these things in Christ. So let's read this message from God's anointed in Isaiah 61 and 62. And friends, as we do, here's my prayer that we will live out these new realities that God's Redeemer brings us into. That's the end of this whole thing. I want us to live out these new realities, not just hear about them and know about them, but live them out. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to uh, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Verse 4. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, They shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion that they have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong, and I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. 
all who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring that the Lord has blessed. Verse 10, For I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Chapter 62. For Zion's sake... I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as a brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land will no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Verse 6. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm. I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners will not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Verse 10. Go through. Go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Clear it of stones. Lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people. 
the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. That's God's word. And may he bless it to our hearts and change us through it. So in Isaiah 61 and 62, God's Redeemer explains his mission to make God's people righteous, which brings them into a new reality. And we're going to learn something about each of those three main threads. God's Redeemer, the righteousness that he brings us into, and the new reality that that creates for God's people. So first of all, let's learn something about God's Redeemer from this text. God's anointed one is speaking here. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. But for the people of Isaiah, they only know it to be the one who is going to rescue them from the captivity in Babylon, a physical nation, in a physical place, in a time in history. And they have a promise to be rescued by God's anointed servant. We've heard about that over and over again in Isaiah. And here, that anointed servant is now speaking. So in verse 1 through 9 of chapter 61, if you want an outline, an expository outline of this text, in part number one of this four-part speech, God's Redeemer announces his mission to redeem sinners. That's verse 1 through 9. He announces his mission to redeem sinners. Look there in verse 1. He says, and just imagine the Lord Jesus Christ holding that scroll of Isaiah, standing in a synagogue there in Nazareth, and saying these things himself. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And because the Lord has anointed me, Jesus says, to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And he goes on. Verse 1 through 3, Jesus, God's servant, says that he has been anointed with God's Spirit. What does that mean? To be anointed with God's Spirit. That means that God has chosen him, empowered him with his spirit, and then sent him on a mission on behalf of the Lord. Chosen and empowered and sent on the mission. And in verse 1 through 3, notice that he is sent to some people. Who is God's anointed one sent to? Verse 1 through 3. The poor. Those who are broken hearted. Captives, those who are bound in prison, those who are mourning, those who are faint in spirit. Friends, listen, here is the truth of the gospel. If you are not those things, if you don't feel your poverty and your brokenheartedness and your captivity, and your imprisonment, if you don't 
feel the mourning of your soul over your own sin, if you don't feel the faintness and weakness of your own spirit, then you have no need for Jesus. The first step of the gospel is to see yourself the way the Bible describes you to be, the way God describes us. And in verse 1 through 3, the anointed one is sent to those people to do something specific. Look what he does. He is sent to bring good news. He's sent to bind up their wounds. He's sent to let those in prison and in captivity know you're free. He's sent to proclaim God's favor, His grace, where His justice should fall. He is sent to give beauty and gladness and praise. Jesus' ministry is one of words, promises that must be trusted before they're realized. And that is the Christian life. That's the gospel. That we, like the historical nation of Israel, have a promise from God about his deliverance in the future that is based on his character and his faithfulness. And we have to believe these promises before they ever come to fruition and they're realized for us. He sent He announces his mission to redeem sinners. And then part two of his speech. Verse 10 and 11 of chapter 61. God's Redeemer rejoices over the redemption that God is about to complete through him. He not only announces it, but he rejoices over redemption. Look there at verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. Who's the I? It's the Redeemer. And he's rejoicing in the Lord. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul soul shall exalt in my God. Why? Because he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Just like a bridegroom decks himself and a bride adorns herself. Verse 11, For as the earth brings forth its sprouts... And as a garden causes what is sown to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before the nations. Do you recognize what's going on here in verse 10 and 11? This imagery, look at it again. Clothed, covered, sprouting of a garden. This imagery is of God reversing the curse and restoring Eden. And he's doing it through the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. His servant, his anointed, is going to be the second Adam who will live in righteousness. So what we see here is, look, uh, just like the, the sin of the first Adam brought shame hiding, nakedness, and barrenness. 
What does the righteousness of the second Adam bring? Verse 10, God clothes his second Adam in salvation. The end of verse 10, God covers his second Adam with a robe of righteousness. Can you see the imagery from the garden where Adam and Eve, sinners, were hiding and God brings them out of their nakedness and shame and clothes them with animal skins? He sends his anointed second Adam clothed with what? Salvation from sin and the robe of righteousness. And you know where that's going. We get that robe of righteousness and we're covered by his robe of righteousness. But that's the second point. Let's not go there yet. And then verse 11, what happens through the second Adam? God causes the garden to sprout and bring forth its fruit. What fruit is it bearing? Look at verse 11. The fruit of righteousness. God totally reverses the curse and restores Eden through the second Adam. So in this speech, God's Redeemer announces his mission to redeem. He rejoices over redemption in verse 10 and 11. Then as we turn to chapter 62, which is really kind of an unhelpful break, uh, chapter 62, verse 1 through 9, part 3 of his speech. The Lord's Redeemer resolves to work until redemption is accomplished. Look at chapter 62, verse 1. For Zion's sake, for the city of God and the people of God, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. God's anointed one declares that he is resolved to work until God's city shines with God's glory. That's what we learned last week in chapter 60. Do you remember that? Gold stars if you do. He resolves. Why does he resolve? Because we already found out how he's going to have to do this. Chapter 53, through agony and suffering that is beyond human comprehension, he will become sin and bear the wrath of God against sin. And so the anointed one resolves, I won't quit until redemption is accomplished. Aren't you glad, friends? That's the gospel. Jesus didn't quit. And not only does he resolve, but then a very interesting uh, section, verse uh, 6 through 9. You can go back and study this later. We don't have time to explore it right now. But he appoints watchmen, and there's a, a lot of debate and a lot of plausibility about who these watchmen are. But if you read this text, look there in verse 6. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day, all the day, night. Uh, They're never going to be silent. So he says, I'm not going to be silent until this is accomplished. And then I've set watchmen who are not going to be silent. What do the watchmen do? Very interesting. You who put the Lord in remembrance... Don't rest 
Verse 7, and don't let the Lord rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise to the earth. That's interesting, isn't it? Jesus says, I have appointed watchmen. And in that particular context, the most plausible thing for, for, for my uh, particular interpretation is that in their culture, the kings had watchmen, not just out on the walls, but also in their, in their staff. They had watchmen who served to remind the king of all of the promises he made. Now, why would they have to do that? Because they didn't have Siri. They didn't have an iPhone to constantly set alarms and reminders. And so the king had a person, an executive assistant, to keep him remembering the promises that he made. So Jesus, the anointed one, says, not only am I resolved to do this, but I'm setting up alarms. I'm setting reminders And those reminders won't rest until those reminders remind the Lord to do exactly what he promised to do. There in verse 7, establish Jerusalem and make it a praise to the whole earth. He announces his mission. He rejoices over the work of redemption. He resolves to work until redemption is accomplished. And then the last part, part 4, verse 10 through 12 of chapter 62, he proclaims redemption is finished and calls Zion's children from all over the earth to enter in to God's city. Look at chapter 62, verse 10. Go through. Go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build the highway, clear it of stones. Lift the signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed where? To the end of the earth, saying to the daughter of Zion, the children of Zion, God's people in every nation, behold, Your salvation comes. Look, behold, his reward is with him, his recompense before him. The anointed one proclaims that redemption is finished. God's city has been restored. Come on. Gates are open. And he calls people from every nation, not just the biological children of Abraham who lived in regional Israel, but from every nation, the children of Zion come because of the signal, the flag who is the Lord. Man, the gates are open. Come on in. Enter into this salvation. Oh, friends, listen. Whether you read the Old Testament or not like this, this is, this is just drop-dead gorgeous. Here we are on Palm Sunday. It's amazing to see how the message of Isaiah 61 and 62 is fulfilled point by point in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. No wonder he chose this text to announce himself. Look, in Nazareth, 
Jesus announced his mission of redemption by reading Isaiah 61. At the wedding in Cana, and in various conversations with his disciples, Jesus rejoiced over redemption, claiming to be the bridegroom who has come for God's bride. Throughout his three-year public ministry, Jesus resolved to accomplish his mission by setting his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem, knowing that he would experience extreme suffering at the hands of the elders and Rome. And then, part four, on the cross. Jesus proclaimed redemption is finished. And his empty tomb invites the nations to enter in to the salvation that he alone accomplished. Friends, Jesus of Nazareth is God's redeemer. He's the only one who can redeem you from your sin. And that brings us to the second theme that we see here in this speech. Not only do we see the redeemer, but we see the righteousness that he gives God's people. The redeemer and the righteousness. Listen, we'll never understand this good news that the Redeemer brings. I mean, Jesus said he he was sent to preach good news. We'll never understand the good news of Isaiah 62 and, and 61 until we understand the bad news of our sin. When this good news is preached to the poor and brokenhearted and captives and bound in prison and mourning and those faint in spirit, and we're described this way, friends, not because, not because we don't have enough money. That's not what poverty means. Not because we don't have enough talent or skill or intellect. But because we are sinners who have chosen to live according to our law instead of God's law. And our sin against a holy God deserves judgment. But God has made a way for sinners to be made righteous again. How can that happen? We're sinners. It's called justification. Big word, awesome truth. Justification means this. It's a righteousness given to sinners by grace through faith in Christ. Here's the way our confession of faith describes it. It was written in 1833, and you'll be able to hear that sort of language, but it's beautiful. We believe that the great gospel blessing which Christ secures to such as believe in him is justification. That justification includes the pardon of sin and the promise of eternal life on principles of righteousness. That it is bestowed 
not in consideration of any works of righteousness that we have done, but solely through faith in the Redeemer's blood, by virtue of which faith His perfect righteousness is freely imputed to us by God and that it brings us into a state of most blessed peace and favor with God and secures every other blessing needful for time and eternity. That, my friend, is the Redeemer's mission and his message of Isaiah 61 and 62. The Redeemer said, my mission is to make God's people righteous again because God's people are unrighteous. They've turned their back on God. They're sinners who are going to be judged for their sin. But I'm going to change that. So God makes His people righteous. Look at this. Just We're just going to take a minute to follow this thread of righteousness throughout these four parts. Look in part number one. The mission of God's anointed is to make God's people righteous. Look at verse three. So that they might be called what? Oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he, God, may be glorified. See, because of God's anointed, the righteousness of God's people becomes like an oak. They become oaks of righteousness. Now, what is an oak? It's strong, solid, secure. Time out. Is that what your righteousness feels like on a daily basis? Are you an oak of righteousness? If you're a Christian, the answer is yes. Why? Because your righteousness is not here. It's alien to you, outside of you. Your righteousness is secure, strong, and fixed in Jesus. And as long as Jesus is righteous, you will be righteous. Part number two. God's anointed is covered with what? A robe of righteousness. So that his righteousness covers the nakedness and shame of all of God's, of, of Adam's sons and daughters. And not only does his robe of righteousness cover us, so we stand before God in a righteousness that is not our own. We're clothed in his righteousness. But look there at verse 11. What happens because we're clothed in righteousness? Look at verse 11, chapter 61. The Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up from his people. His people, the church, his people individually. We now bear the fruit of 
righteousness rather than the sour grapes of unrighteousness that we've read about in Isaiah. Part number three, following this thread of righteousness. Part number three, God's anointed is resolved to persevere until what? Look at verse one. I will not keep silent. I will not be quiet until Jerusalem is saved. Now, he he gets specific. What's his mission? Verse one, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. And then the nations will see your righteousness and the kings will see your glory. Friends, the Redeemer's work is not finished with justification. Being saved from sin is only half of the equation. The Redeemer's work is not finished until sanctification is complete. And we can be sure of this. He who began a good work in us will complete it at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I'm resolved and I've set alarms to remind me to keep doing this. Part four. Because of the finished work of God's anointed, God's sinful people who are currently being judged in Babylon in in the context of Isaiah, God's sinful people, their city was destroyed, they're deported to a foreign country, they're living as slaves in a, in a foreign country. They will be called, what? Chapter 62, verse 12. The holy people. The holy people. How many of you are holy? If you're in Christ... Holy, because he made you holy. The Redeemer has been sent to make God's people righteous. And that brings God's people into a whole new reality. So let's take a look at four new realities from these four sections. The the Redeemer didn't just come to get rid of our sin so we can go to heaven someday. The Redeemer rescued us from sin, made us righteous so that we could live here and now as his people on earth shining his glory and his righteousness to everyone around us, our neighbors and the nations. Corporately as a church, corporately as the big C church all over the world, throughout all time and history, and individually as Christians. That's God's plan. So what new realities does redemption bring us into? Reality number one, the first section, verse one through three, 
just like the Spirit was anointed by, uh, pardon me, just like God's servant was anointed by God's Spirit, God's anointed gives us a new spirit. He gives us a new spirit. Jesus said, I'm going to give you my spirit and my spirit's going to dwell inside of you. And what does that spirit do? Go back and read verse 1 through 3 and you're going to hear that the spirit of Christ keeps preaching the gospel of Christ to our poor, mourning, faint-hearted and imprisoned souls. He gives us His Spirit to continually preach His gospel of hope to the poor, healing for the brokenhearted. Listen, friends, this is every day. The Holy Spirit is telling you the truth about your situation, and He's not condemning you. He's telling you there's hope, there's healing, there's freedom. There's grace, there's comfort, there's encouragement. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit now inside of us. Just look at the end of verse 3. He gives them a beautiful headdress instead of the ashes. Instead of Ash Wednesday, let's have beautiful headdress Wednesday. The oil of gladness, that's the... That's what makes your countenance shine. That's like ancient cosmetics. The oil of what? Gladness instead of mourning. And the garment of praise instead of a faint, discouraged, weak spirit. See, the the Spirit's ministry of gospel truth transforms us so that it shows. So that our joy shows through our faith. Uh, face and through our life. If your joy is not showing like mine often does, and it's, it's because I'm not listening to the truth of the gospel about who I am in Christ. Here I keep condemning myself in my sin when I'm righteous in Christ. Now go live it. Go live. Not only does he give us a new spirit, but then in verse 4 through 6, he gives us a new work. So just like God's anointed is anointed with his spirit, chosen, empowered, and sent on a mission, now we have a new mission. We have a new work. Look in verse 4 through 6, particularly verse 6. Now what's our work? But you shall be called what? The priests of the Lord, and they will speak of you as the ministers of our God. How many of you are priests? How many of you are ministers? Every Christian in the room. Because God has made of his church a royal priesthood, a nation of priests. So now it's not like there's God's people and then there are the few priests. God made us all priests. And what do priests do? Hebrews chapter 13, through him, through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, both in praise and in testimony to others. We've got a job to do, friends. We have a new spirit and a new work. We're priests and ministers. It's not just the elders, not just the deacons, but all of us. We've got a new work to do. 
the next section, verse 10 of chapter 61, we have a new fruit, not the old fruit. What kind of fruit is born out of an unrighteous, sinful heart? Works of iniquity, lust, pride, greed, resentment, discontentment, gossip. But now we have a new fruit sprouting up. The Spirit sprouts up His fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Friends, the curse has been reversed for you. Our Eden has been restored in your heart, and it will be restored physically and finally someday when Jesus comes back. But right now, Eden's already restored in your heart. And we can bear the fruit of righteousness. And then finally, the fourth new reality that God's Redeemer brings us into by making us righteous, He makes us righteousness, which gives, He makes us righteous, which chapter 62 tells us gives us a new name. Now, I wish I had more time to spend here. Because this is so encouraging. A new name. So what does a a name represent? And what does a change of name represent? A change of name, as most brides will know, means a change of relationship. You're now not under your father. You don't have his name in our society, but now you're taking your husband's name. A change of name, and by the way, God uses this language here, Uh, of marriage in chapter 62 repeatedly, but God changes our name by changing our situation. So in verse 2, look there at chapter 62, verse 2, you will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Yeah, I keep thinking about Toy Story 2, where when Andy writes on the, the bottom of his, right, that means you belong to Andy. All of Andy's toys have Andy written on there. God has given us a new name. He's written his name on us. We belong to God now. Isaiah even said that that Jesus engraves it. Tattoos? Engraves it in the palm of his hands. That's awesome. Okay. We have a new name. So what was our name? Verse 4. Our name was forsaken and desolate. Remember, physical Jerusalem, what was it now? It was forsaken. Totally destroyed by by the Babylonians and it's desolate. But now, end of verse 4. Look at it there in your Bibles. Chapter 62, verse 4. But now, you will be called my delight and my wife married. My delight is in her, my wife That's our new name. God says his delight is in his wife because he marries us. Just like a groom rejoices over his bride there at the end of verse 5, so your God rejoices over you. And when I'm feeling particularly low and I look myself in the mirror and say, I don't like you, I usually say I hate you. I need to think that's not true. God thinks about me 
the same as what I think about her. My delight is in her. She's my wife. God's not upset, done, and over me or you or his church. He bought us with the blood of his son. He married us. And now we are the object of his delight instead of his wrath. God changes our name. And so then at the end, look there in verse 10 through 12, what happens? You, Zion, God's city will go from being forsaken by God to set apart for God. And so verse 12 is redemption in reverse. Look at the order there. They shall be called, one, the holy people, two, the redeemed of the Lord, three, sought out, four, a city not forsaken. You see that order? That's redemption in reverse. What happens? We're forsaken. And so what does God do? He seeks us out. And then what? He redeems us so that we become holy. God's church, corporately, Christians, individually, are called, come on into that. The gate's open. It's accomplished. It's finished. Enter into it. That's not the celestial city heaven. That's enter into that new reality right here, right now, and live as God's holy people on earth. And so Peter picks this up. And he says, with that in view, be ye holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. Go to school and live like the holy people of God. Go to work. Use your house as an outpost of righteousness for the people of God. That's what our church is. Friends, we're called to live this out every day of the week until we're taken home by the same spirit that indwells us now. That's beautiful, isn't it? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in your Redeemer, in the righteousness that he gives us, and in the new reality. Thank you for your spirit and for this new ministry, and for the new fruit, and for this new name. We don't deserve any of it, but you give it to us by grace, and we glorify you this morning for your grace to sinners like us. If there's anybody who's hearing this sermon right now, hearing this text, who's not a Christian, God, I pray that you would show them who they really are, the poverty and the the sin and the, the captivity of their souls so that they know your favor and grace through Jesus Christ. Please make disciples of Jesus through us as we live out the new realities accomplished by your gospel and your son. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.